Kia ora and welcome to Right at Home, realising a future where all New Zealanders are well housed. This is a podcast about how we can realise a fairer housing future for Aotearoa New Zealand. What solutions do the experts, changemakers and policy people have? Join me, Vic Crockford, Community Housing Aotearoa's Chief Executive, as we look for a way to ensure the human right to a decent home is a reality for all New Zealanders. So make sure you follow, rate and share to help us get the word out there and settle in for what will be a fascinating discussion. Given the fact that demand for homes in Aotearoa New Zealand has outstripped supply for many years, there is rightly a big focus on increasing the supply of homes. A key way of doing that is via our planning regime, with the most well-known recent example being the bipartisan agreement between National and Labour to increase medium density developments, affectionately known as the townhouse law. But years of evidence here and overseas have shown that new supply does not guarantee affordability or the types of homes that might be needed in any given area. To ensure there are enough affordable homes to meet the needs of the community over time, there needs to be a specific plan in place to make this happen. As the current housing crisis we find ourselves in has shown, the market will simply not do that on its own. Enter inclusionary housing, a tool that has been used in many countries that is pretty much what it says on the tin, a policy that ensures affordable homes are included in developments. But as with any planning policy, much of the devil is in the detail. So to help us get stuck into that detail, I'm joined by former CEO of Community Housing Aotearoa, Scott Figginshow, beaming in from Washington State, and Roy Thompson, the co-founder and managing director of Newgrounds Capital, joining us from Arrowtown. Scott and Roy come from different backgrounds, but they share a key experience in common, something that I also share with them. Time spent living and working in Queenstown, where a successful inclusionary housing policy has resulted in the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust helping hundreds of households and essential workers into homes. Scott, if we can start with you, can you give us the overview on what on earth inclusionary housing is and how it works? And perhaps most importantly, how did you get it off the ground in Queenstown? Hi Vic, sure, happy to do that. Look, at the most basic, Inclusionary housing is a planning requirement that means affordable housing is delivered as part of each development. That's it in its most simple form. There's many ways that this can happen. How we got started in Queenstown, it was actually a developer who came to the council at the time, wanted to rezoning of land and wanted to make a contribution that some of the housing developed there would be affordable. What the developer was seeking from council is essentially a level playing field, a set of clear provisions that if this developer would do that, that others would also do the same. Thanks, Scott. And Roy, you have the on the ground view as a developer working in many different parts of the country, including working with the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust on the recently owned Toru Apartments. What are you seeing in terms of the market dynamics going on and why do you think we need something like inclusionary housing? Well, that's absolutely right, Vic. I've been an employer in Queenstown for nearly 24 years now. You know, I'm fairly acutely aware of the pain that my own team members go through finding any kind of decent housing accommodation in, in Queenstown. And that's been a long-standing problem. It gets worse at certain times, maybe slightly better at others, but it's a long-standing problem. And we, we've been looking for quite some time to 
try and find innovative ways of reducing the stresses in that, particularly in that rental housing market that serves the area's workforce. So one aspect to inclusionary housing is to give developers financial incentives or disincentives, as it were. Uh, Scott, if you could jump in with how that works from the planning perspective and also offer your thoughts on how the current Resource Management Act reforms going on could impact this aspect of inclusionary housing as a policy? Sure. At its most basic, the process of rezoning land from a rural use to an urban use creates a significant step up in the value of that land. And all the inclusionary housing programs are seeking to do is ensure that some portion of that value increase is actually retained and delivered as affordable housing. And so in that sense, it's an important tool to have available because it allows that value to not be lost but instead retained in some form of community housing trust. And then that resource is there available to make sure that housing that's delivered is actually affordable to the family that moves into it. The thing that's really important, I think, about inclusionary housing that's different from other types of programs is it essentially works best in a partnership between a local community, largely through its council and its planning provisions, and the local developer community. It needs from central government clarity around policy, ensuring legality of provisions, but it actually, it brings new resources to the table that lets developers who often, my experience has been that most developers actually want to make a positive contribution towards delivering affordable housing, but they want to make sure that housing is actually going to be kept affordable. If they are foregoing some of that value uplift themselves, they want to know that it's retained and recycled and held in trust for future generations. Roy, would you agree on that? Absolutely. I think if we think about the mechanics of the Toru transaction that we did with Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust, the housing trust had cash, basically. It had cash, but it couldn't get land. That was the problem that it was struggling with when we first engaged with them, probably in 2016. We, on the other hand, we had some land and we were planning to build, particularly rental housing on that land. But when we sat down with Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust and thought about their situation and our situation and whether there were opportunities to, to help each other, it was kind of a natural fit because they had sourced some of their capital base from the inclusionary housing mechanism. We were able to do an early stage transaction on 50 homes in the new Toru development, I would say a fairly reasonable price, and that helped the whole project to stand up. Without the inclusionary housing mechanism, Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust would never have been in a position to contract those 50 homes, and we may well not have been in a position to proceed forward with the Toru development in the way that we did. Thanks, Roy. And from the developer's perspective, if we're thinking about the mechanisms for implementing inclusionary housing, what do you think is best in terms of the balance of carrot and stick, as it were, if we're thinking about incentivisation and disincentivisation? What would be, from your perspective, that optimum balance of those two things? It's an interesting question to answer because we, Newground, are a developer, (laughs) so we like less stick. But in the particular instance that we're talking about here with Toru, it was helpful to us, you know, that whole mechanism. I guess to answer your question directly, I think carrot is always better if it can be made to work. Yeah. And Scott, did you have any comment to make on that? I think that one of the most commonly used incentives that accompanies inclusionary housing policies is the idea of a density bonus. So the 50 units that Roy spoke about, gosh, 
what if he could have delivered 55 units in that particular example? And that's one of the ways that, that the cost of those units and ensuring that they remain affordable helps get mitigated. Now, currently under the Resource Management Act, the whole premise of offering a density bonus is actually not necessarily allowed. It's, it's very problematic because it assumes that when consent is given, it's given at whatever number of units that particular development is meant to have. There's several things in the upcoming resource management reforms that, that need to happen in order to actually enable inclusionary housing across the country. And when I say enable, I don't mean that it has to be used everywhere. It's simply, it's meant to be an enabling provision, meant to be something that communities, when they wish to use it to meet housing needs that they've identified, then it's got to be there. A nice clear package, all tied up with a bow, with nice clear Legal, legally safe provisions to use. And if we did that and enabled that, so if a developer did want to offer 10% of the uh, units in a development that were going to be retained affordable for moderate income households for a very long period of time, 50 plus years, then perhaps that that is something that the, the public should be happy that unit can or that development can add an extra 5% of units or 10% of units. That's the kind of provision that helps often make the figures work out so that development's economic viability can truly work. Thanks, Scott. And look, nothing is a silver bullet. I think we can all agree around this virtual table that it's a wasted exercise to believe that any one policy or any one entity or player can make progress against the affordable housing demand that we have on their own. But some of this inclusionary housing policy discussion just sounds like logic. So, Scott, why has it not happened here in New Zealand yet? Oh, Vic, that's a tough one. It's tough. It's tough only because it makes me really sad that it hasn't happened. There's actually no reason why it couldn't have happened. Let's be frank about it. There's challenges that that all across the political spectrum, no matter who has been in power at different times, the ball has been dropped on numerous occasions. And that's what, to me, in my view, has got to stop. We've got to pick that ball up. We've got to get it across the line and make it happen. One of the most important things is we have to provide rock-solid legal certainty to every local authority in the country that if they follow an agreed process, which would be a, a housing needs assessment backed up by a clear and robust set of local policies that are documented in a local housing plan, and that is done in consultation with the community, local developers using nationally consistent terminology and definitions. If we had all of that in place, then what Queenstown has done, it, it could actually ramp up even further. And every all parties know that's, that's how it's going to work. And other communities can design policies within that framework that are suited to their needs. I think there's huge opportunity also for our iwi Maori provider colleagues to make this work, partly through the way that they already like to hold land in many cases. Those, that idea of that we're holding land in trust, but with some legal certainty and the ability to attract external finance, if we got some of those things, I think, worked through, I, there's just huge potential all across the country. Yet there seems to be a number of misconceptions still abounding about inclusionary housing. And I just wonder if I could turn to you, Roy, on this one to start with. What do you think is going through the minds of developers and construction companies when they hear the words inclusionary zoning or inclusionary housing without the context of how it might work in practice? Probably quite uh, threatening, really. 
Like I would say to most people who don't aren't familiar with the mechanism itself, it certainly can be a drag on a, the feasibility of a project, obviously, particularly if it's, if it's just a cash payment. That can be quite difficult. And I think the thing that I really wanted to mention around inclusionary housing is that it doesn't in itself enable affordability. It enables housing community housing providers to get to the table and be able to develop or purchase homes, but it doesn't necessarily help with the affordability issue per se. And that's where I think there's another leg to the whole equation that councils need to focus on. And it really comes back to Scott's point around the density bonus. What we found with Toru was, yes, Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust, they had money available to do a transaction with us, and that was great. But actually, we, the private developer, had to give the discount that enabled a more affordable end product for the tenant and resident households. There were no other financial concessions for recognising that we were actually helping to enable or facilitate affordable housing. And I would have thought that the development contribution side of things is a very easy tool for councils to, coming back to your carrot versus stick question, to, to put a very clear set of carrots in front of developers and say, if you deliver affordable housing, we will make certain concessions to help that happen. So the cost of that is shared. Thanks, Roy. And Scott, you've looked at this at a number of other locations overseas, both in person and in theory, when you were working on this policy with Community Housing Aotearoa. What's your response to that? Yeah, no, Roy's absolutely correct. What should always accompany um, an inclusionary housing program is a pool of resource that projects that meet the household affordability level, so a, a moderate or low-income household only paying a third of their income in rent or mortgage repayments, that when the project meets those requirements and is going to do that for a very long period of time, that they can access funding that fills some of the gap that Roy is talking about. That together with, and in cases where the community housing trust is actually receiving land from a greenfields development, those are the kinds of the input subsidies, let's call them subsidies, that's what they are, that are on the table and that makes affordable housing stack up. I've often been fond of the saying that the funny thing about subsidized housing is it requires a subsidy. And so much of the hand-wringing that has gone on around, oh, we shouldn't do inclusionary housing, is people getting all wrapped up in an economic argument about, well, is it a subsidy or is it not? And, you know, guess what it is? But I'll tell you another subsidy that nearly every development also has to contend with, car parking. So if we're happy conceptually to say that a development has to provide some amount of car parking depending on its size, that is no different than saying we'd also like that development to provide some affordable housing, depending on its size. And if we can equate those kinds of things, then again, how we use that land value, how we hold on to that land value, how we look at how we provide housing finance, those are the kinds of tools that we look at Australia, the US, certainly in the UK, the Section 106 program there has a decades of track record. All of those kinds of things bring together land value, retention of land value, affordable finance, they look at development contributions, that whole package of things works together in a clear and transparent way with settings that are often in place for decades at a time. My guess is that the next development that Roy is planning on the back of a napkin right now, it might be 
three, five, eight years before that development, someone can move into it. And with those kinds of long time frames, you've got to have certainty that the settings that you're working with today will be in place when everything is actually coming together. Now, you mentioned greenfields, Justin Scott. I will come back to that long-term certainty. But just before that, we do know that evidence from Australia shows that inclusionary housing as a policy has worked better in greenfield developments rather than brownfield developments. Why do you think that is, Scott? And what do you think we would need to do to address that if inclusionary housing uh, was supported in New Zealand? Well, first I would say, Vic, that if a policy works in greenfield development, we should still do it. Just because a particular tool may be better suited in greenfield developments than in brownfield developments, for me, is doesn't carry any water as a reason not to proceed with the policy. The brownfield developments have a whole different set of challenges than greenfield developments do, and those are important challenges to tackle. The main one related to inclusionary housing is that there is already an assumed amount of development capacity allowed at that brownfield site. And often what needs to happen at a brownfield site may or may not relate to adding a whole lot more units than it is the costs of disestablishing what was there, dealing with infrastructure issues, remediating some other, whether it's contamination or whether it is just a site that was well past its use-by date and needs to be reconfigured. Those are all costs that, that need, of course, to be dealt with. But you may end up not a whole lot more value uplift on that site, which is largely the tool that inclusionary housing uses in order to fund the affordable housing. I might just add, Vic, that I think there's a danger in assuming that simply because that's the case in Australia that it'll hold true here as well. The whole land value and construction cost formula is quite different here than in Australia. And I think you could quite well find that it's it's substantially different here. And that's a great point. What we do know from overseas is that inclusionary housing needs to be hyper-contextual or hyper-localised in the sense that it is about the specific community in which it's operating. And that brings me to that point around long-term certainty and the current policy environment that we find ourselves in, which is one where the Resource Management Act is experiencing the greatest reforms in a decade. And it is a unique opportunity for us to consider how we apply and enable inclusionary housing in New Zealand. And I just wondered if both of you could give me what you would say to ministers about the opportunity at hand under the RMA reforms and what it could mean for inclusionary and affordable housing. Gosh, well, I guess the first thing I'd say is we need to be a lot more sophisticated in New Zealand about how we design housing policy and value capture policy. And one of the first parts of that sophistication is understanding how all of these multiple actors work together and allow them to do their best. It can't be a policy controlled by Welling, something that a former Labour government had done with the Affordable Housing Enabling Territorial Authorities Act was it actually set up a framework that created the perfect conditions for inclusionary housing by essentially enabling local authorities to follow a set of a policy framework to basically do those uh, policies local. What that would do is ensure that the inclusionary housing policy was fit for purpose and it they become self-leveling. So an argument I often hear is when, you know, the market's gone up, so sure you can afford to include affordable housing if the market's rising, but what happens when the markets fall? Guess what? 
that should indicate there is less demand for new affordable housing. So the policy becomes self-leveling through that requirement for a needs assessment that is done as developments come along. So that's the example of a, we need to have a, that framework set through central government legislation, through the RM reforms, but it gets applied locally. And Roy, do you have a one-liner that you would like to send into the halls of power or a response to Scott there? It's not really a one-liner type question, is it? No, look, I think, I think it's about collaboration. One of my biggest frustrations, trying to push forward the types of relatively affordable housing that we are trying to do is that there's I think there's long-standing deeply entrenched suspicion on behalf of both councils and central government of developers and their intentions but I also know that there are a lot of developers around New Zealand who have very genuine intentions and desires to help contribute to the, the housing crisis as it were and I think if there was genuine collaboration, openness, and more trust in the whole process, then I think an awful lot more could be done. Honestly, I see opportunities every week that just go begging for lack of genuine collaboration. And it's hard to fathom, to be honest. I can't understand why private capital and people with know-how and good intentions aren't brought into the discussions in a more collaborative way, because I'm very certain that it would lead to many, many good outcomes that we just don't achieve today. Thanks, Roy. It's a really excellent point. And just going back to our agreement that there's no silver bullet or one player that can solve this thing on its own or their own, what do you think needs to happen to overcome some of those perceptions or unlock that collaboration that we all know that we need? I think to a certain degree, it's people putting aside their vested interests for a sufficient amount of time to actually get that collaboration going. If a developer works with a community housing provider in a genuine way trying to bring about affordable housing, but the council is sitting there saying, we won't give any concessions, we won't yield up anything to help make this development come to life, or it might be the central government through Kaingora, likewise just insisting on maximising land value, for instance. Those types of processes bring those opportunities to a sudden halt. Because people feel like, why should I keep trying to do this thing if if everyone's not going to play the game, particularly if it's local or central government. But I think we definitely do not see that happening near enough. Thanks, Roy. And that really speaks to that level playing field that Scott was discussing in terms of the opportunity we have with the Resource Management Act reforms is really about how you set up the framework so that everyone knows the playing field they're on and then they can go about implementing that locally based on their local frameworks. Because if you don't have a clear understanding of the rules of the game, it's really hard to then play it. It's a really strong point that you make. I wonder if you had any comment on that, Scott, or final final words of note on that topic of collaboration. Roy is absolutely correct. And I think that you go back to one of your earlier questions, Vic, how did it first get over the line in the Queenstown Lakes District? And we had a mayor, Clive Getty, uh, who was fortunate to have three terms and had built that rapport at that time among many in the development community and across multiple sections of the community. And it, it was not a question of whether we do it, it was only a question of how's it going to work. 
And that's what resulted in what Roy is doing today, the legacy of the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust. And I think going forward, that same kind of let's figure this out together approach is what it's going to take. I think we should also remember that the who we're serving here is very different from government's mandate around a welfare housing policy that's, you know, around social housing. Communities have very different workforce needs and profiles. And often your inclusionary housing programs help fill that missing middle, both for working rent families that are renting. And I remember one of the early cases, Roy, when you were talking about the, your challenges for some of your staff and things, often it was not only the entry-level worker who's trying to rent a place, but as that person progresses in their career and then becomes you know, maybe a junior manager, they want to settle down in the community, maybe there's some kids now, they want to buy a house. And so that ability for our young Kiwi families to connect permanently to a community is part of also what well-done inclusionary housing policies can help people do is progress from renters to becoming homeowners. Look, that doesn't work for everyone. It can also help you do things when people need to progress from being homeowners to again being renters. So that flexibility is one of the hallmarks. And it's why I firmly believe this has to happen at the local government level. The central government settings are too too broad to be able to, to handle that kind of nuance. Thanks, Scott. And that's an excellent place for us to finish, I think, with the reminder that ultimately policies are about helping people put down roots in places that they want to call home. And it's the people in the homes at the end of the day that the policies need to work for. So ngā mihi kōrua, thanks to both of you for your expertise and insights on a policy area that we at Community Housing Aotearoa strongly believe needs more attention here. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you tune in to our next episode as we look for a way to ensure the human right to a decent home is a reality for all New Zealanders. So give us a like, leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Until next time, kā kite.